the LexisNexis Immigration Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Dan Kowalski, editor of Bender's Immigration Bulletin and online editor of the LexisNexis Immigration Law Community, talks to Professor Michael Olivas, William B. Bates Distinguished Chair in Law at the University of Houston Law Center on Alabama's Immigration Law. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. This is Dan Kowalski. I'm the editor of Bender's Immigration Bulletin, published by LexisNexis, and the online editor of the LexisNexis Immigration Law Community, formerly known as Bender's Immigration Bulletin Daily Edition. My guest today on this podcast is Professor Michael A. Olivas. He is the William B. Bates Distinguished Chair of Law and the Director of the Institute of Higher Education, Law, and Governance at the University of Houston Law Center. This year, he is the President of the Association of American Law Schools. He's on the editorial board of many scholarly journals, including Bender's Immigration Bulletin. He's published 13 or 14 books. I guess he's working on his 14th book now. His 13th book, No Undocumented Child Left Behind, will come out in January. I've already ordered my copy on Amazon.com. Professor Olivas, it's a pleasure to have you with us today, and our purpose is to talk about the Alabama law, H.R. 56. Uh, The long title is the um, Alabama Taxpayer and Citizen Protection Act. Right. Uh, Who can be against that? Who can be protected? (laughs) Uh, Also known as the Beeson-Hammond, B-E-A-S-O-N hyphen Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N, Alabama Taxpayer and Citizen Protection Act, H.B. 56. Now, After having been signed by the governor, signed into law, an unusual coalition of private plaintiffs and the federal government sued the state in federal district court. The federal district court issued a very lengthy ruling enjoining some portions of the law, but but allowing other portions to go forward. The parties then moved on to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and the 11th Circuit issued a very brief order, a 16-page order, enjoining two of the key provisions. And I'd like to talk about those today in particular, uh, I believe it's Section 28. Now, for the listeners, Professor Oliva's expertise, in addition to immigration, is education, both public education at the elementary, uh, secondary, and uh, university level, and the interplay between immigration law and education law. So this part of HB 56, Section 28, is, I know, near and dear to his heart. So, Professor Olivas, uh, can you take us back to the to the beginnings of HB 56 and Section 28 in particular, and, and lead us on through this tortured, uh, as you say in your essay, long and winding road to, to where we are today. Well, thank you. If, if it doesn't have a Beatles reference, uh, it, it just doesn't grab anybody's attention. So That's long right. and winding road. Parallel universe could also uh, be evident here. 
uh, it is an unusual coalition of, of actors, but not as unusual as you think, because a number of the players have also been involved in fighting the Arizona statute, uh, which this is based upon, at least in part, and certainly in spirit, and it takes Arizona even further. There, as a member of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund board, I found my organization in court with business interests where you wouldn't have thought we were naturally on the same side, but we were opposing the various E-Verify and civil rights provisions because we knew that they would be employed largely against Mexicans or people perceived to be Mexicans, uh, including Mexican-American citizens. In the business interests, of course, uh, the Chamber of Commerce and other groups were against E-Verify in large part because it they considered it uh, intrusive business regulation. So uh, we found ourselves in this odd eclipse of being on the same side, even though we we're both heading in different directions and uh, you know, joined at the hip for reasons that neither one of us really wanted to be there for. But that's what happens. Uh, not only do politics make strange bedfellows, but of course, so do so do uh, political acts and legislation like this, and of course, litigation. So you have to begin with Arizona and even before that, the spores of this with Prop 187 in California back in the 1980s and and the 90s. So that uh, these issues are just the the newest chapter in the nativist and restrictionist uh, arsenal. And the thing that was so unusual about Alabama was that it simply didn't hide its, its hand. That is, it was in plain sight that what they were trying to do was to remove undocumented parents and workers, but also undocumented children. It was done under the thin veneer of, well, we're going to, for safety reasons, we just want to know how many kids are here, wink, wink. Well, of course, as soon as that was implemented, virtually all these school children were taken out of school by their parents. And this is part of a longer saga. Alabama is one of the few states that has uh, targeted these children, even though they didn't call it targeting. And even though, regrettably, Judge Sharon Loveless Blackburn had not enjoined it. She hadn't enjoined it in large part because of sort of technical standing kinds of reasons, but the 11th Circuit did enjoin it. And so they've reverted back to pre-law standards and practices for these children. But of course, the damage has already been done. And of course, the nativists knew that this would happen. They were hoping that these children would leave. Uh, in fact, every year, uh, many thousands of, of citizen children are deported and removed with their undocumented parents. And uh, make no mistake about it, this uh, doesn't attack birthright citizenship, but this is the real holy grail of the restrictionists, is they can't really get any traction on the story about going after children, uh, whether or not it's a census or registering them or the various other kinds of things, requiring of social security numbers in some states and school districts to identify the children, uh, requiring driver's licenses of parents, even in states where the undocumented can't have driver's licenses, these kinds of things. These have been documented for many years, and it usually just takes a little bit of, of threat or slapping them upside the head for them to get right on that particular issue. And frankly, most states have simply made a virtue of necessity. That is, they enroll these children knowing that these children eventually are going to be our children, and they educate them. Uh, in fact, the interesting thing has been the long-staying accommodation 
to Plyler versus Doe, the 1982 case that next year will celebrate its 30th anniversary. So Section 28 has been enjoined now, uh, and it, along with the higher education provision, which was Section 8, where they drew so broadly that they would have ruled out people permanently residing under color of law, such as uh, refugees. And in fact, a refugee had standing, and Judge Blackburn held that uh, that that particular provision would likely be overturned on the grounds of preemption, and so she enjoined it. Uh, they used language that was way too broad. And this is, of course, part of the problem with drafting just to simply get at the undocumented is that poor editing, poor drafting, poor conceptual definitions, uh, and frankly, some ambivalence about the various groups, uh, as well as ignorance, frankly, about some of the groups, means that uh, they draft way too broadly. And here, uh, even the district court, uh, which had let Section 28 go through, did uh, not allow Section 8 to go through. Someone sent me a cartoon about Section 8 with uh, Private Klinger from MASH. I just want to make it clear that this is not the same Section 8 as would allow you to get out of the military for (laughs) cross-dressing. And just a a footnote, Professor Levis, isn't the Latino population in Alabama, whether they're citizens or permanent residents or undocumented, relatively small? Well, yes. Uh, unlike Arizona, where, of course, uh, Latinos constitute almost uh, 30% of the population, here in Alabama, there are very few of these. Uh, in fact, uh, less than 4% of the population, only several thousand children, were even affected. But uh, this is not... Uh, a nuanced argument based upon uh, the the numbers uh, being overwhelmed, which is the language that's often used in the Southwest as in other areas. Here, the parents brought small numbers of children with them, a number of them citizen children, by the way, which in a cruel, uh, ironic sort of way was used by some school officials to say, well, you know, some of these are citizen children, so they won't be affected. Well, as anybody knows, these are often mixed families with citizen and undocumented children, and uh, the nativists and restrictionists know this, but all the census evidence was that it was a very small population, which included both citizens, permanent residents, people permanently residing under color of law, as well as the undocumented. But uh, Alabama is a long way from from Latin America and from Mexico, and there were a very there was a very small number of these folks, um, and they wished to try and what they called nip it in the bud. I heard a radio cast one evening uh, where someone characterized it this way, that it wasn't yet a horde as has occurred in other states, but uh, you got to nip it in the bud. Well, yeah, that's, well, <laughs> I suppose, I suppose they nipped that in the bud, yes. And where are we now? The We've got the 16-page order from the 11th Circuit. Are we now right. waiting for a uh, a much longer decision from the 11th Circuit? Well, they have, they were, again, just dealing with the preliminary procedural skirmishes, which are not insignificant, of course. Uh, after all, you have to have standing, and you know there, there are a number of underbrush issues that have to be cleared away, and they've promised that they will hold uh, a hearing, full hearings uh, on the matter uh, within the next two months. That would put it by the end of this calendar year, uh, which would be much more accelerated, I might add, if that were the case than it has been in Arizona and the Ninth Circuit, where this has dragged on for some time. And then fitting that into to Arizona and also Georgia, do you do you see 
these uh, individually or collectively ending up at the Supreme Court? And, and related to that, how does this dovetail into Plyler and, and the, the 30th anniversary? Do, do, is there any threat of, of Plyler being, if not overturned, maybe modified? Well, there's always been a, a threat in the wind that Plyler might be modified or overturned. After all, the case, which has lasted longer than many people have, have ever uh, predicted and has shown much more resilience and traction than people ever assumed, in large part because they become exposed to these children who are strivers and who, who do so well. But uh, there have been uh, attempts at the state level, such as in uh, Lulac v. Wilson, which struck down most of Proposition 187. But there's also been an effort at the at the federal level. Representative Gallagher tried in the 1980s and 90s to to introduce uh, legislation to overturn Plyler at the at the federal level because, as you know, Plyler really only dealt with the issue of whether or not a state or a school district might charge tuition. It didn't deal with the question, which I consider to be a different question entirely of whether or not the federal government might do this. Now, he failed to get traction, but left in his wake both Ira Ira and Pora in, in 1996, both of which reversed some of the gains of IRCA. And, you know, the alphabet soup here gets a little confusing, but it's very clear that life was different after 1996 with the tightening up of loopholes and uh, the removal of the discretion that used to be there, and uh, as well as much of the due process that had been there before. That was in large part seen as a trade-off against the Gallagher Amendment, uh, which was not going to go any further once these two laws were enacted. And those, of course, are playing themselves out on a daily basis uh, with people who practice both criminal law as well as immigrant law, immigration law generally. Uh, I do see these as part of a, a larger scale nativist uh, attack, and and you know they're entitled to their their viewpoint in our society. Uh, people who can get into court may certainly do so. I think that it's mean-spirited, and I think that singling out children is not a uh, a way to make social policy. And this is really the only group of children who are litigated against uh, as a and legislated against as a group. But I think that for the most part, there's a deep reservoir of of support and understanding for these children. And what it all does, of course, is is not show the need for birthright revision, I think that you know, changing the Constitution and going against long-standing, 100-year-plus cases uh, concerning birthright citizenship is not going to happen because that, that would require constitutional amendment and change. But I think that there's still a question of whether or not there can be federal legislation that would affect Plyler. And, and of course, uh, I do think that that's part of the, the hope of nativists is that they can draw so much attention or argue these on alternative grounds, such as changing the discourse, uh, the rise of the, the hateful language, according to these children, magical powers, such as uh, uh, alien babies and and calling them anchor babies and the like, uh, knowing full well that you cannot pass on any immigration status to your parents until you're 21. I've always kidded, uh, only half kidded, that uh, we, we need more of these children born if they're so smart that they arrange to be born here only 21 years later to give their mothers some kind of opportunity. And, of course, 15 years after that where they might become permanent residents and citizens, depending right. on where they're from. Right. Uh, so that I do see this as part of a, a larger agenda 
and it's been guised both in civil terms, such as school finance and the need to make sure that all children have enough money to go to school, but uh, at the same time, singling out these children. And it's interesting that the law in Alabama did not change with regard to the requirement that these children actually attend school. That is, the truancy laws were not altered. These children were required to be in school. Of course, it would have made it illegal for them to do so uh, in many in many respects. Well, we just have a few minutes left, but mentioning children and uh, schools, can you give us a teaser of your, your book, No Undocumented Child Left Behind? Well, thank you for, for the mention. Uh, believe it or not, it'll be the first single-authored book on, on this uh, important case since the case uh, arose in, in Texas in 1982. Uh, it'll be available in fine bookstores everywhere and soon, of course, to be a major motion picture starring Jimmy Spitz as me because of his eerie resemblance that a number of people have, have noted. I have often. Uh, yes. Well, uh, in the book, I I review how it came about, including you know, sort of the luck that the, that the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund had, uh, uh, as well as the other uh, groups that litigated this, uh, how it arose how it has been largely accepted uh, and made virtuous by a number of school districts, and how there have been constant needs to to make certain that various loose ends are pinned down, such as things I've already mentioned, uh, having to do with attendance zones, uh, other kinds of issues having to do with identification of parents, and so forth. Uh, there's been this unfortunate and, and recent uh, attempt by uh, various immigration officials to acknowledge that the children are okay that there's a that they're off limits but their parents are not and so uh, in, in both uh, my hometown of Santa Fe New Mexico as well as Detroit and other cities the children have been used as bait that is the various immigration officials will will hang out next to schools and when parents bring the children they'll arrest the parents and hold them uh, even though they can't tell these kids are undocumented they all look uh, you know they, they don't have they don't have the mark of eye on their forehead or the mark of Cain. But this has happened. And then, of course, uh, the, the, the children are eventually removed, even though they may be citizen children, uh, with their parents. And this is a very serious problem. Uh, there's also still this looming threat, I suppose, of, of federal legislation, although I don't think that that's likely to occur, given the, the kind of traction that various Latino and other pro-immigrant groups have demonstrated. But all of this points to the need for comprehensive immigration reform. That still is the shibboleth that is looming over all of this. On the one one hand, nativists are concerned with birthright citizenship, but most of us are much more concerned with the need for comprehensive immigration reform, which should settle once and for all the status of, of a number of these families. And there'll be some line drawing and some trading off, but we've gone over 30 years now without any serious immigration reform, or almost 30 years, certainly 25 years uh, since IRCA, and we're overdue. We've never been out of sync uh, for so long with with a period of legalization or for opportunities for that. We've never been so long with with the registry, sort of one of the long-standing uh, provisions. Uh, it's out of whack now. It's not, yeah, If you've been here before 1972, you can stay, but uh, who, who's been here that long and hasn't already transform their their status. And this has leached, of course, into the higher education area where over a dozen states now have either in-state tuition or financial aid for 
for what happens to these children once they do go to college, but at some point they max out. I meet students all the time who, some of whom have even gone to professional school, but can't get licensed, can't find work. It's it's extraordinary that they would be in college whatsoever. The bottom line is that these are our children, and they're here, and we need to educate them, and we need to employ them eventually, and we need to regularize their status because they aren't going back anywhere. And we will be the beneficiaries, unlike uh, other aging societies. Uh, ours is aging, but we also are lucky to have the birth rates and the inflow of young children who will eventually uh, support you and me, Dan, in our retirement. May that be a long time in coming. I hope so. And on that hopeful note, uh, Professor Olivas, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there and we'll hope to come back in a future podcast to look again at uh, Alabama's HB 56, the Arizona law, and the 30th anniversary of Plyler v. Doe. My guest today has been Professor Michael A. Olivas of the University of Houston Law Center, the director of the Institute of Higher Education Law and Governance. For Bender's Immigration Bulletin and the LexisNexis Immigration Law Community, this is Dan Kowalski. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at LexisNexis.com slash community. Follow the communities on Facebook and Twitter. The LexisNexis Immigration Law Community Podcast, copyright 2011 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated.